G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. Prayer and, and faith actually started to come into my life when I was around about 15. My mum and dad's relationship started to really break down a lot when I was around about that age of 12. And uh, a lot of arguing. I Actually, I couldn't. I often went to my friend's house, my best friend's house. I never told him. I often went there as a kind of refuge just to get away. And I, very many nights I would go to bed crying. The Story. The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, sometimes when we see sports stars on TV, it's easy to get caught up in their fantastic athleticism. And forget that, at the end of the day, they're just people like you and me, with hopes and dreams and feelings and emotions. Today, we'll get a peek behind the scenes and get to know retired footy player Steve Lawrence up close and personal. He'll share some of the struggles as well as some of the triumphs in his life as he has a chat with Eric Scadabo in our Melbourne studios. Premiership footy player Steve Lawrence is with us today. He's originally from South Africa, grew up in Brisbane and played for the Hawthorne Hawks for 12 years. And the highlight, of course, was in 1991 when they won the Premiership and Steve was named the player of the final series. And we're not going to talk about any of that today. Steve, <laughs> welcome to the program. Thanks, Eric. Good to be here. Now, nothing against footy, but we really want to kind of focus on behind the scenes. What was happening in your life personally? Is that going to be okay? Sure, yeah. Okay, but uh, I mean, we might get in a little footy in there, here and there. Okay. That'll be all right? Yeah, that's good. Love, that's, love the footy. Okay, yeah. I, I, for some reason, I thought you might. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's go back to your childhood in yeah. South Africa, where yeah. footy wasn't a sport. Actually, cricket's the big sport. Well, yeah, my dad played test cricket with South Africa. He was actually born in Zimbabwe, or the old Rhodesia, mm-hmm. and um, played for South Africa after he married my mum towards the end of his career. And I'm one of four boys, and so when, even when after we came to Australia, we came to Australia when I was just four, uh, we played a lot of cricket, and cricket was my number one sporting passion all the way through my junior years and my, my teenage years. So footy kind of came along accidentally, one would say. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I guess you could describe yourself as an accidental footy player? Yes, I, I could, uh, something I have said from time to time, accidental footy star or footy player, um, partly because of that. So it was actually a Victorian friend of mine who had moved to Brisbane who said, why don't you come and play footy? I used to play hockey in the off-season uh, in winter because Dad also played hockey. Uh, and so I started playing. I thought, oh, this game looks crazy. It looks like spaghetti, you know, people running all over the place. <laughs> so you had was, never seen footy growing I hadn't, up? I'd only seen it on Channel 7 on a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. I'd been used to all the codes where you have one team here and the other team there. There was offsides. But in footy, there was players everywhere. Oh, uh, rugby was yours. Rugby and, and hockey and soccer, all similar in that sense. And I thought, this looks like fun, people running around. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I'll play. So I started playing when I was about 11. Uh, I was playing hockey and footy on a mm-hmm. Saturday, and if they clashed, I would miss one or the other. Eventually, though, I got to enjoy footy much more, and hockey dropped off and became quite good at playing footy as well, and so kept moving from there. An accidental footy player. Yeah. Well, let's go to your childhood. How was your faith growing up? So um, 
Actually, my faith really, I think, was ignited particularly through my dad's influence. Uh, he started bringing prayer into our home uh, when I was about 12 mm-hmm. and um, actually got my brothers and myself together before school to pray a little bit. Um, just really small to start with. And of course, you know, I went to a, a boys' school and we had a girls' school right next door. And uh, I used to like to go to school early because the the girls were able to be at the same library as us. <laughs> I used to like going there and checking out the books. Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> at the library. So I was a bit annoyed at dad, you know, at that point. But um, he, he persevered and um, he started to introduce different materials and things that would help me to sort of open my heart to prayer and things like that. So prayer and, and faith actually started to come into my life from at that age, but it probably went deep when I was around about 15. I mean, there's a context to this story, which mm-hmm. I can tell you that was really that my mum and dad's relationship started to really break down a lot when I was around about that age of 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of arguing. I Actually, I couldn't, I often went to my friend's house, my best friend's house. I never told him. I often went there as a kind of refuge just to get away. And I, very many nights I would go to bed crying. You know, things like, I was really in a lot of pain. Um, whole foundation was kind of falling down and a lot of arguing many hours into the night regularly. You know, I have one, uh, image that is in my mind that one time was about, I woke up to, you know, arguing it was about 2.30 in the morning, but there was another sound because even today when I, there's kind of yelling, I kind of recoil a little bit. So mm-hmm. it has had a kind, kind of, of flashbacks. Yeah. But uh, I remember hearing this other sound, you know, vroom, vroom. I thought, what is that? So I got out of bed and walked through the house and to where the house the noise was coming. And it was a, I knew it was coming from mum and dad's bedroom where the shouting was. And uh, when I came and looked into their bedroom, I could see the big mattress sort of pushed into the corner. And my mum was uh, sort of standing above my dad, who was actually on his hands and his knees. And my mum was actually yelling at dad. And, you know, I love my mum, but during this period, she really was in a, a bad way. She'd hmm. lost her way, but she became very aggressive towards dad. He's a very big man, but verbally and psychologically. And she was yelling at him saying, I never want to sleep with you in this bed ever again. You cut this bed in half, a bed which my dad had built. And he was actually literally sawing the wow. bed in half. So this image of my dad kind yeah, of... Yeah, that, that's kind the of... The whole... Yeah, it, it was really a very deeply wounding mm-hmm. thing and yeah. a, a kind of photograph permanently imprinted on me. Um because you know, we get our security, you know, from our parents. You know, and their unity, kids. and this yeah, is the yeah. symbol for it, which yeah. is being forcibly kind of divided. Uh, so in, in many ways, that was, you know, very deep thing. But at the same t- so during the sort of months that followed, I went into the, it was, I was about 15 at the time, I went into this very deep, dark kind of place. Um, life seemed very bleak. I couldn't really see future or hope or every mm. day was long and drawn out. A bit like at the dentist, just sort of every moment is just noticeable. Mm. And it was into this that I had my first, I think, real encounter that I was conscious of, of the person of Jesus. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'd always believed in God, even when I was a kid, but a God who made the world and seems to be impersonal and sort of behind the clouds and tied up, you know, far away. away. Um, But, um, and it was not, I didn't hear a voice in my ears, but I had a very deep conviction of the presence of Jesus, which was surprising. And I knew it was him for some reason. And it was like you were saying to me, I know what it's like for the world to fall down, for there to be darkness, mm. apparently no hope, feel so isolated and alone. But I want you to try, and I was like that when I was hanging on the cross, you know, it was, mm. it was a totally dark place. But there is resurrection. I want you to believe it doesn't Amen. finish there. It, yep. it, it is, you know, there is future, even if you can't see it now, I want you to believe that. And 
I believed. Uh, and it wasn't like two minutes later everything was good, but um, over time I realised I wasn't in the same place. I'd come out of that, and but my faith was much deeper and much more personal and my prayer became much more meaningful. And, you know, that ever since has really permeated my life in a substantial way and gone from strength to strength. So that has kind of been your foundation going through young adulthood from that point forward? Yeah, I mean, I always, my faith was my number one priority. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, and um, even while you know when I started at Hawthorne and and um, you know went from Brisbane to Melbourne, I mean I went down for one year thinking I'll see how I go. Mm-hmm. Again, when I talk about the accidental footy player, the first time I thought of playing AFL football was when I was asked to by Hawthorne uh, as really? a sixteen-year-old. You know, playing in junior football, there wasn't even. Now, a, why did they out of the blue just ask? Oh you? well, they have their recruiters and they're looking for certain types and things mm-hmm. like that. And I think they saw me and saw that there was you know future ruckman and things like that. Um, but at the same time, there was a zoning system, and when the new Brisbane team was about to emerge into the league, all of Queensland was going to be zoned to this team, so they wanted to get mm-hmm. in before that. So they put me on a three-year binding contract, and I'd never had any obligation to go. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, nothing to lose, so we signed it. And then I went down for one year. I didn't have any idea that it would end up being 12, and then I'd play in a premiership or anything like wow. that. Wow. So, An yeah. Accidental was... footy player. <laughs> and that's one of many stories of... I think God's direction. I'm sure it was mm. God's hand in my life working through that. Now, as a footy player, you know the reputation of it's a lot of drinking and carousing, and that's kind of the reputation. Yeah. What was your experience, especially as a, a man of faith going? Yeah. Well, in look, that there, there's a lot of things. Atmosphere. It's true. There is that kind of blokey culture. On the positive, you've got a bunch of great people really striving for a common goal and, you know, for excellence and a lot of very fine people and. You know, most of that doesn't get in the media, so it's worth mm-hmm. saying. And I, I really love our Yeah, they're not going to put in the media, hey, a bunch of guys acted really nice today. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not. And, you know, so um, – but there were moments of conflict and difficulty. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I always tried to be authentic and be myself and, and just be one of the guys and be good friend and never stand above anybody but also be true to myself. So one time uh, I was about 24, so I'd already played in a premiership, but mm-hmm. still youngish guy, and mm-hmm. I was still a bit – afraid of conflict because of you know my experience as a, as a young guy and we were on a bus on the way to uh, a training camp at Phillip Island and uh, all the players got on the bus and all the officials got in their cars and we headed off and the bus driver immediately turns on a pornographic film on the on the television at the front of the bus wow now, now yeah and i'm sitting at the very back of the bus cuz being nearly being 6 foot 7 you know i needed some leg room the only one <laughs> spot in the whole bus with his leg room yeah. right at the back in the middle I thought, oh, no, you know, and it was explicit, full-on X-rated mm. video. And I'd seen pornography before and, you know, and I knew I don't need this. This yeah. is not going to be good. I don't need these images mm. around my mind. I just thought I've got to do something because I, mm. I can't be in this situation for two hours, you know. And, oh, uh, wow. in fact, at first I thought I just need to get out of this. So I started looking out the window, mm. blocking my eyes a bit. and uh, But, of course, the sound effects are still mm. going. So I um, – I sort of said a silent prayer under my breath. Said, "Lord, you got to help me do something." And I didn't know what I would do, but I what found myself an awkward situation. Very awkward, you mm. know. And I stood, and I couldn't even do anything discreetly because I'm right at the back. There's 45 guys on the bus. Yeah. And I, and I, at that era, was a bunch of players who were superstars. You know, we played in uh, like some fantastic, very high-profile, big personalities. So I was, you know, and so I stood up and walked down the length of the bus, and it was a long way. Hmm. Now, I don't know how I looked. I might have looked confident, but I was terrified. I felt like my knees knocking, my tongue go dry, sweat down the side of my face. I had no idea what I was going to do. 
and I walked closer and closer and just before I arrived at the bus driver, into my mind I realised to the left of the bus driver just behind him was a 17-year-old player and I had this thought so it leant down into the bus driver's ear and I said, you have a minor on board this bus, what you're doing is illegal, hmm. turn it off. So he, the thing that happened though surprised me completely was he turned it off, didn't even look around, didn't hmm. say anything, didn't remonstrate. And I thought, gee, that was easy. Because often it's not like that, is it? Often you do something like that and someone will hurl yeah. abuse at you or comment or whatever. Anyhow, that was it. Then I had to turn around and walk back, hmm. this time facing all my teammates. And yeah, all. what was yeah. their reaction? Not one word. Wow. I was stunned. And I went all the way back. It was much further walking back. Then I sat down. The two guys on either side of me didn't comment. They just kept talking. It was almost like it didn't happen. You know, it was hmm. surreal. The whole training camp, which was three days, nothing, not once was it mentioned. In fact, the whole season was never mentioned, nor for the seven seasons that followed in never. my career. Well, 18 years later, it was referred to. Now, at this time, yeah, there's this whole thing, you know, what happens in the footy trip stays in the footy trip. Hmm. So I've started to imagine, think, did I imagine it, you know? Anyway, I was, it was the funeral of Alan Jeans, the legendary Hawthorne coach. Mm -hmm. And I met up with two of my teammates, Andy Collins, who played in three premierships, Darren Pritchard. No, sorry. Andy played in two. Darren Pritchard played in, played in three. And Andy Collins raised it. And he said, do you remember the time you got the porno turned off on the bus? I said, yes. I remember. Cause no one had mentioned it for 18 years. Wow. And he said, well, I've got to tell you something about this. I said, oh yeah, what? He goes, well, as you know, I'm a coach. I've been coaching in South Australia in senior football team for a number of years and I'm often speaking around the state, all around at schools and business mm -hmm. functions, etc., on leadership and that sort of thing. And I always tell that story. I said, you're kidding. I've never heard wow. it come back to me. And he said, when I say it, I say, it's the greatest act of leadership I've ever seen. This is what he said. So I don't mm -hmm. know what I'm saying. I don't actually agree. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, because you knew it was the right thing to do. And you knew no one really agreed with you, mm. but you did it anyway. And I, I learned a lot from this moment. I realized, you know, we don't know our audience. We just yeah. don't know. Yeah. You think something's happening, it's just no one knows about it. What matters is just doing what's right all the time because yep. it, think, yep. it has its own power, you know. Yeah. And I, I think and people that are was, watching. And I mean, I think God also wanted to tell me, hmm. you know, share this story because that was, I was already telling this story because people had said that was incredible. Um, but also what I learned from this meeting, you know, mm. because in fact it's led me, among a whole range of other things, to really work in the area of leadership and what really is leadership. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Premiership footy player Steve Lawrence, who played for the Hawthorne Hawks for 12 years. We'll learn more about Steve Lawrence and why he's so passionate about leadership when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. 
Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with Eric Scadabo chatting with Premiership footy player Steve Lawrence, who played for the Hawthorne Hawks for 12 years. The highlight, of course, was in 1991, when they won the Premiership, and Steve was named Player of the Final Series. Next, we're going to find out more about his life after footy and why leadership is now so important to him. Well, I, I mean, I've had a number of, you know, formal leadership positions in education and, and, and uh, ministry and uh, big events and things like that. And, and uh, I've been a recipient of other people's leadership, both really good and really bad. Well, your coaches that you've had? I've had, a, had five coaches, but also like other, other things, executive positions. And, and I, I mean, I think for me, it's not really so much about strategic, although that's very important, but my gift is really to inspire and equip people with stories and ways of actually being authentic and and the way we relate to one another and how we build culture and transform cultures just through our normal interactions and helping the other person be the fullest person they can be as well as ourselves and working together on that basis, not just uniformity and things like that. So yes, 12 months ago, I started my own business, a leadership business, which is uh, called Altum Leadership Group. And uh, that's um, public speaking in you know, keynotes and conferences and in business, uh, helping business leaders. Also, it's really about character development. And we know that mostly failures of leadership are failures of character. Hmm. You know, helping people really develop character. I mean, we're all weak and poor and, you know, are flawed and we hmm. all need yep. to be restored and we need to experience mercy, but also even how to how to actually go through a process of regularly forgiving and creating a platform where you you know, helping each other forgive one another and clearing mm-hmm. away all those things that build up between people. And Well, that's kind of the thing that when you're talking about character, obviously you want to have somebody who tells the truth and is upright. Yeah. But sometimes we make mistakes too. We do. So we do. that's why you said forgiveness. So knowing that you can kind of get back up after you've made a mistake and ask for forgiveness, and that's why it's all about that personal relationship with the Lord. Yeah. That he, he wants you to be a man of character, but if you're a person of character, but you don't have faith in him, then you've kind of missed the boat. And he's the source of our character. Right, you know? right. Um, and, yeah, and also it's true. And it's not about pretending to be perfect. None mm-hmm. of us is perfect. Yeah. Uh, and we're all flawed with weaknesses and regularly falling, mm-hmm. I, I guess, <laughs> if everyone's similar to me, which I know is the case. Um, no, I, but, I don't have any problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I understand for you. <laughs> but even even in our weaknesses, mm you know, can become sources of incredible grace for ourselves and for others. And How do you is, mean that? Well, you know, uh, for example, in my parents' separation, which mm-hmm. was a disaster object. Yeah, how are they doing? How did that kind of get resolved? Well, it's not really resolved, mm-hmm. um, but it's come a long way. There's been lots of healing there, and I get on really well with both of them. Mm-hmm. But um, for me personally, I was terrified of getting married. Oh, yeah. As you could, as you could yeah, imagine. Yeah, after did, seeing something yeah, like that. My parents separated when I was 17. And so even when I, when I met my wife, Annie, and, uh, you know, she has got this beautiful character and very calm. And it took me probably four or five years to really relax and believe that she's actually not going to turn on me. Hmm. You know, that was just the judgments that I Because that was always in the back of your mind. It was always was in my heart hmm. and everything. And there's, you know, I mean, there's still even now there's little points of healing, but I discovered through this wound of my life that, in fact, God was calling me and my wife, Annie, to into ministry with couples. So Yeah, that's something that the two of you do. We, we've done, done it for a number of years, and mm-hmm. um, and it's very powerful, and it's grace. It's not, it's not I mean, and the, of course, he, God works through our natural gifts and our spiritual gifts. So that's interesting. You're saying because this was a weak area for you, 
God has kind of made you more compassionate? Or Well, not only that. I mean, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he, he wasn't fixed up as if he hadn't been re- crucified. You know, no, he still he, had the He had the wounds, yep, right? Yep. And so healing doesn't mean not having the wounds anymore. Mm. It means them being transformed into something else. So, mm, And that's the point. first thing you wanted to show. Look, touch my hand, touch my feet, like put your hand on my side and all mm, that. Yeah. And I think for us, if we can become, through God's grace, transformed in these points of you know, our own crucifixion, let's mm. say, and people have their own ones, everyone has something, um, we shouldn't see them as obstacles to our way of, often they're means, pathways, mm. you know. Yeah, and so point. for me, that's become one of the ways that with Annie, we've been given this rich, powerful ministry to couples and, uh, you know, we even now do, do talks together and have mm-hmm. been for the last number of years where, you know, God is working in and through that woundedness. You know, I, I had a principal, I was working, worked a fair bit of in schools and this one principal used to say, wounded people wound people. Hmm. And I mean, so there's something true, true about that, yeah. but it's not a complete truth because healed people heal people. Ah. And I think if we, if we can allow the, the, the wounds of our life, which unless they I mean, they can become just wounds and sources of anguish and angst for others, or they can become sources of healing for other people. Um, so how do we get from being a wounded person wounding others to being healed so that we can heal others? Well, we need to come to the Lord. Uh, and, you know, we need to be in community because it comes through human means. It comes through uh, direct divine means, uh, you know, through prayer, through, through scripture, through, through, you know, encountering Jesus. Um, many, many ways mm. like that. I um, know from interviewing people in the past, mm. they say, Hey, if I can use what I've gone through, yeah. if I can use that to help other people, then that makes it you know worth what i've gone well people through. often ask the question why god why and yeah, they, and, and yeah. often though it's a, it's a rhetorical question but they should actually ask the question why and usually i mean god never likes these things he didn't like jesus being Crucified. suffering on the cross yeah. he doesn't yeah. like any of us suffering you know but there's the whole mystery of suffering of course and it's difficult to talk through but he allows it only because he knows he can bring something greater out mm. of it and I think we've got to discover that something greater with him. And it's not to say it's an easy path, but um, that's certainly been my experience. And although I, of course, didn't like what happened, I'm almost grateful. I mean, God kind of allowed it mm. and he's brought a greater good out of it. And I, I rejoice in that. And, give and you appreciate your healthy marriage because you've seen the well, alternative. My, my marriage to Annie, I mean, is a miracle, much mm. more than walking on the water. <laughs> because if Jesus did that easily, he can do that sort of stuff mm. without it. But... I have six children. We have a beautiful family. And, I mean, and I'm uh, assuming that Annie came from a healthy family? She, yeah, she's the one with order, with <laughs> stability, <laughs> and she has an amazing family. Um, very charitable people, very organized, very beautiful and, and selfless. Never seen a more selfless So her couple. background is kind of the opposite of what you It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, and so we, we help each other because there are things that I help her to be a little bit more risk-taking and <laughs> that sort of stuff. Beautiful. Uh, You're counterbalancing we each are, other. We are. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not to say everything's perfect and all that. It never is. But um, we have a very beautiful marriage. And uh, I know that, that that was one of the advantages I had, which was that um, I realized marriage can't work just on human strength. Mm, yep. And I knew there's a sacrament. I mean, it's it's really a marriage in the Lord. It's really something God is the one committed to it more than us. And I think of when the, you know, the wedding feast at Cana, the couple ran out of, they ran out of wine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can feel like there's nothing left. We can mm-hmm. run out, and but Jesus can transform it and make the best wine from water, you know. From so, I, think I heard somebody say, "Having a wedding is easy. That's right. Yeah. Making a marriage, yeah, that grows. That's the hard part. Mm. The, the wedding marriage preparation program we went through, 
it had that motto, you know, a wedding lasts a day, marriage lasts a lifetime. That's kind of what I was yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but that's fantastic. So you're, you're working together. You have a book coming out as well. Yes. I've uh, recently written a book on a leadership book called mm-hmm. Make Your Mark, uh, Five Hidden Keys to Great Leadership. And it's, uh, Wilkinson Press publishing it. And, uh, yeah, it's really full of stories of people in public leadership, in history and literature, including some of my own stories, like the one I shared mm-hmm. there, a couple of them I shared. Um, on the on the whole focus of you know relational leadership and culture and so uh, that's really what you're passionate about. I think it is, and also others. helping people find their purpose. I also mm-hmm. coach yep. for half time, and uh, you know executive. What is that? Half time is um, a coaching organisation helping people make the transition from the first to the second half of life, from success to significance. Usually in their forties, fifties. Mm-hmm. Yep. John Sigma. Uh, John Sigma, yeah, yep. a great man, and uh, so I'm one of the coaches there, and. We have roundtables of about eight or ten people for 12 months, once a month, and helping looking at your core, your capacity, and context. A lot of people think, oh, once you hit 45, 50, you know, it's downhill. In fact, the-, the Oh, thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> a lot of people. I'm not saying I, I don't. <laughs> but the the idea here is that, in fact, your second half should be more fruitful, exactly. more effective, exactly. more meaningful, mm-hmm. and, you know, establishing a legacy which is other-centered and- yep. All of what you've learned should be drawn into it rather than sort of abandoned. Mm-hmm. And so, but finding that place, because often midlife is a transitional period. And so mm-hmm. it's, it might be quite a different context. You know, so it's about looking at your core, your capacity and your context. So that, that that's something I'm loving doing. And, yeah. and I do that also one on one coaching with outside of half time and, uh, helping people find their real purpose. And so I'm lo- sensing uh, there's a trend here of helping others. Kind well, yes. I mean, look, my wife and I started an international community uh, in Australia, which has started in France, like when I was like 24, 25, lived in Italy and run a school of mission. And yeah, I just, I've, I'm not one of these kind of five-year plan type people. It's like just <laughs> abandon your life to the Lord and he'll take you on an amazing adventure. And, and it sounds I'm, like you've been on an amazing adventure. I have, I mean, and I hope to keep it going. So I, I think it's exciting, it's difficult, uh, but uh, I think there's something really rich about it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Pleasure. We said we weren't going to talk about footy, but we did talk a little bit about it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for sharing. Great. Thanks, Eric. That was Eric Scatterbo chatting with Premiership footy player Steve Lawrence, who played for the Hawthorne Hawks for 12 years. Now, as we heard, he has started his own business called the Ultim Leadership Group, where he is a speaker, executive coach, and writer. He's also written a book about leadership called Make Your Mark, Five Hidden Keys to Great Leadership. For more information, you can go to his website, altumgroup.net. That's altum, A-L-T-U-M, group.net. Finally, I think it was great to hear about Steve's strong faith and courage to take a stand for what is right, even when it wasn't popular at the time. As it says in the book of Psalms, take note of the one who has integrity. Observe the godly, for a future awaits those who seek peace. Well, thanks for joining us for Steve's story, and we thank him for being so open and honest, sharing about his life. Until next time, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. I knew what I was going to do, and I walked up to my bedroom. I'm arguing with God, and I'm saying to God, well, why shouldn't I do this? After all, you don't love me. You don't care for me. And I saw my Bible on the end of my bed and I pushed it off the end of the bed. It fell open to Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And I knew that God was saying, this is how much I love you. When Elizabeth Kendall was 30 years old, she found herself divorced 
with four small children. Disappointed and confused, she wondered if there was any way that God could still use her. However, God is now using her compassion for persecuted Christians in a remarkable way. We'll find out her story next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.